Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Okay, let's look at um, the next segment of Christ's life, the baptism and the temptation of Christ. The baptism of Christ, where do we find that? We find it in Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3. And when did this happen? Well, it says John began his ministry in the 14th year of the Tiberius' reign. So that would be about A.D. 29. So Christ's baptism was right around that day. So Christ started his public ministry right around A.D. 29. And his ministry went for three and a half years, which would give him his crucifixion date of A.D. 33, give or, give or, give or take. All right? Um, evidently, John had been ministering for a little bit of time before Christ was baptized. Why do you think that? Because word had gone to Christ about yeah. ministry Well, he had been, John, evidently, John had been ministering for a while before Christ came to be baptized by John. Because John had been drawing the crowds and, you know, the word had spread to Jerusalem. In fact, you know, the religious boys came down to find out what John was up to. And he says, hey, here comes the snakes, which is not, ex yeah, he's sort of a nice preacher, you know. He's sort of one of the guys I want to meet in heaven. You know, he's just like, tell it like it is, you know, let the chips fall where the chips fall, you know. None of this uh, seeker-sensitive kind of stuff. Where was it told? Well, or where was it? We're not really told, but probably down near the Jordan River. Why is that? Because that's where they were. And where else was there? What else was down in the Jordan? It's it's too simple. Your, your third grader, would, your fourth grader, had figured this out. Water. water. <laughs> Where are you going to baptize somebody in Israel? There's, it's a, it's a desert area. Oh, I didn't think of that. You know, yeah, you got to have water. <laughs> All right. So it's got to be near a lake or a river or something, you know, for there to be water. And you don't want to dunk them in the dead. Yeah, you don't want Dead Sea, you know. So, yeah, it was Jordan River. All right. And what was it? Well, baptize means to immerse or dip, to, to submerge, to I, and, and, the, and another connotation is identification. And this is a big one. Um, we've talked about it here over the last, you know, few times, and, you know, I, I don't think I'm heretical on this, but I hold a little bit different viewpoint than some people do as to the major meaning of baptism. To many, baptism refers to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The question I have is, what did it mean to John? Was it an identification? Or? Well, would John have understood death, burial, and resurrection? No. Nobody did. I mean, it's sort of like God giving a sign when nobody knew what the sign was. But he 
No, he doesn't, does he? Yeah. He doesn't say, I want you to do this mumbo-jumbo. Why? Well, you know, you'll figure it out in a couple hundred years. There's no meaning to it. I mean, if we're to do something, a ritual or Passover, something, there's some significance to it. There's some meaning to it. So I don't think the meaning was death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What was the meaning? Well, he has preached the gospel of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if they were his disciples and followed him, they would be identifying with his message and, and repenting and being identified with mm -hmm. that message. So they were preparing themselves for the kingdom. Right. And in fact, what you find is baptism was a common right in those days um, practiced by, the, by Jews and by the Essenes um, sort of as a rite of passage, if you want to call it. And, uh, for example, if you were an Israelite proselyte, if you're a Gentile and you converted to the Jewish faith, one of the last things that would happen is they would baptize you. And after that, you were officially a Jew. All right? So it was a sign of, of a rite of passage. Um, um, until you were baptized, you were not really part of the group. But once you were baptized, that's, that's it. It's like taking the oath when you're going into the army. You know, until you take the oath, you're a citizen. But once you take that oath, what are you? You're a dog face or a jarhead or whatever it is you are. Because that's the point of no return. And that's what you see here with baptism. So, yeah. Getting branded. Yeah, once... You're marked. Yeah. And, and I remember one of the missionaries from, I think Nepal was in here, and he said, you know, in Nepal, they don't care if you convert to Christianity. They do care if you're baptized. Because now it's official. Now it's official. Yeah. And why was Christ baptized? Well, I've read a lot of stuff on this. And... Um, even from John MacArthur, and I just, I, I don't, I don't see it. Um, it says in the Bible that he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, I think Christ is our perfect example. I think he did a lot of things setting that example for us. One of, the, one of the reasons they say is that he did it as an example to the, us as believers, that it was an example for us to follow. And I think there's some true validity to that. He's identifying with the message, too. I think that's the message. I, th I think that, I think when you look at why was Christ baptized, the reason he was baptized for the most part Bart, don't let me forget, you need to sign up, or did you sign up? Listen. For the class. No, I, I need, you told me to call. Okay. I'm going to call, but do I need the form? That's what I said. Yeah, I got the form. Okay, okay and you also get the syllabus? Well, yeah. Well, did you call Nancy? I called her. She just told me to give you the chance. All right, well, then she'll, she'll put you in a class then. I'll get a form for both of you. Okay. Do yeah. you want the check, or should I call Give her? me the check, and I'll, okay. yeah. I'll get it. You got it with you? Oh good. Yeah, I'll write it oh good. I got I got to get it got from the it. tax guy yeah. while he's got. What, what's the amount? One forty-seven. No. While one forty-seven. Yeah, I'm gonna use my old quality. 
While while he's got the money, we're going to get it here. So it's just through Moody uh, Moody Bible Institute. Yeah, John, when you look at Christ's baptism, he was identifying with the message of John. Now, let's say Christ was not baptized. Pretend he wasn't baptized by John, and he went off and did his ministry. What would be the message in people's minds? Two messages, and we'd have to figure out which one we're going to believe. Right. You got John over there, he's preaching repentance, he's baptizing people, but you got Jesus over here, he's preaching repentance, but there's no baptism. Well, you know, what well, I know is he is it a different is it a different message? Is it a different person? Is it a different ministry? What is it? So by Christ being baptized, in my understanding of scripture, by Christ being baptism. It was not that he was identifying with the sinner and all that kind of stuff. It's that he was identifying his ministry with the ministry of John the Baptist. They were the same ministry. John the Baptist was the forerunner. Christ was the one that he was pointing to. And by having Christ baptized by John, it connected the two in the minds of the people that it was the same ministry. And in fact, after Christ was baptized, he went out preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom. And what is that? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. The king is here. Now, in the Jewish mindset, what do they understand by that? The conquering king. That's what we're looking for. That's what we understand. Now, did John understand it that way? No. I think John thought that it was going to be a king. He thought it was going to be an actual king, right? He believed the same thing. And he, he was told that it would be the one that the Spirit came upon. Right. So he, so he was when, going to identify who the king was. Yeah. So when Jesus came and was identified as the king, then he didn't do all those kingly things. What happened to John? What did he ask Christ? John the Baptist? Remember when he was in prison, he sent his disciples saying, Are you the one? Or do we look for another? Then he sent back the words, The blind see, the lame are healed. Right. So what you see there is even in John's mind, what is there? There's still that little doubt. Little doubt, little confusion. Because again, and, and see, we don't appreciate that. We read through the New Testament and we gloss over that. We need to understand that. We look back and we say, well, what's wrong with those lunkheads? I mean, didn't they see Christ as the king? Well, no, they didn't, because what were they looking for? A conquering Messiah. And Jesus showed up, and he didn't do that. So he didn't fit their preconceived notion. But the baptism... Oh, go on. Well, they still have that notion today. They do. Premillennialists, that's what you preach. Yeah, and... We do know that he is the king. He is coming back. He is going to rule. I mean, there's no doubt about that. We can argue about the timing and all that, but we, but if you're orthodox, you have to believe Jesus is physically, literally coming again. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. If you deny that, you're not a Christian. And he's going to come back as king. But what they had missed is they had missed the understanding that in order for the king to arrive, 
They needed to be ready for the king, and they were not ready for the king. See, th this, is the, this is the issue. We can digress on this a little bit, but this is the issue with most of us. We want God. We want God on our terms. Yeah, we want God to do what we want God to do for, from our perspective. And we need to break out of that and take God for who He is, whether He does what I want Him to do or not. God is not on call to do what I bid Him to do. Going back to this false teacher, false prophet, God is not on call for to do what that false prophet is saying. I don't want... God on my page. I want to be on God's page. He's not here to sit on the phone we prepared for him. Right. I love that. That you know that's a profound statement. He's not here to sit on the throne that we make for him. He, he he's going to bring his own throne. We come to him on his terms. And see that's what Israel missed. They didn't they wanted the king. But they wanted the king on their terms. And Christ said, no, it doesn't operate that way. You don't get me on your terms. You get me on my terms, on God's terms. And part of that is repentance. And there was no repentance in Israel. The leaders wanted nothing to do with Christ. But when Christ was baptized, he was baptizing him. He was being baptized by John in order to do, I think, several things. One, it vindicated John's ministry, right? It validated John's ministry. It validated Christ's ministry. Because what happened? And the Spirit descended, and the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, and whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So all those that was in that vicinity that day heard that. Right. to validate it. Did Christ need to repent? No. Well, no. I mean, so his baptism was not as a sign of his repentance, but I think it was more a sign of his identification. See, see, when you were, put it this way, if you were at the Jordan River and you were going to be baptized by John, you were, you were in that baptism, you were indicating several things. One, you're indicating that you had repented, that you had the proper attitude. Secondly, you're identifying with the message of John. It is a true message. I believe the message that John is preaching. I believe the king is coming. I want to be ready for the coming Messiah. And you're agreeing to that. And you're making a public profession of that. Now, in Christ's case, all right, he didn't need the... Part A, right? The repentance part. But what did he do? His baptism was him saying what? I agree with the message of John the Baptist. It is a true message. I agree with that. I believe that. I believe the king is, is here. In fact, I am the king. And I'm validating the ministry of John the Baptist. And Christ also validated his own ministry as a continuation of John the Baptist. And in the minds of the people, they did not see two separate prophets. They saw one prophet who prepared the way 
for the Messiah, it was the same mission, not two separate missions. Had Christ not been baptized by John, there would have been an, a lot of confusion as to, well, is his message the same as John's? Is it a different message? John's saying the, the Messiah is coming, but we have this guy Jesus doing stuff. Is he the Messiah or, or what? Or by, by him being baptized, it validated his Messiahship, his ministry, John's ministry. It made it one ministry. And then later on in, in the book of John, when uh, Christ, they were baptizing more than John, and the Pharisees and that were trying to make a, a situation out of that, and Christ left. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't even be a part of that conversation. No. One more question, too, on this. You know, one of the things with the Messiah, he, would, he was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that come into play with all of this, when the Spirit came down at Jesus' baptism? And how does that come into play with the uh, kingdom? All right, let's, let's sort out the question and try to get the answers to that. John said, there's coming one after me who's going to baptize you with fire. His winnowing fan in his, in his hand, he's going to gather wheat in the barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. In that case, what is the baptism of fire a symbol of? Judgment. I don't think it has to do with the baptism of the spirit tongues of fire. That, that's different. I'm not talking about tongues. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking about the baptism in Acts 2 with the tongues of fire. Yes. Okay. Okay. I think the baptism that John is talking about is a baptism of fire. He said, I'm baptizing you with water. There's somebody who's going to baptize you in fire. His winning fan in his hand. He's going to gather the wheat into the barn and burn the chaff. So... Okay, fire burn with chaff. Oh, that's judgment. Okay, so I think that statement is one of judgment. So Christ is going to baptize with fire in the sense of baptizing with judgment. And we talk about that, baptism by fire. We use that, that phrase to talk about it. All right, so that, I think that's one thing. What's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, when we are born again, we are placed into the body of Christ, right? We are identified with the body of Christ, we're placed into the body. That's the baptism of the Spirit. It's dry. There's no water involved in that. All right. Now, what's your other part of the question? How does that play out with the kingdom? What do you mean by that? Well, from what I read, it, it says that when the Messiah comes, he was going to baptize in the, with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit. Now, the tongue. The Holy Spirit and with fire. With the yeah with fire. So when you think about that, <clears throat> the kingdom being a spiritual kingdom, you can easily look at the, the term Holy Spirit and the judgment where it's going to start separating the true believer from the non-believer, the, the wheat from the chaff. So you can look at it from a couple ways. God's getting ready to purge his people mm -hmm. and make them what they should be because the body of Christ is also the bride of Christ. Right. And, and I think... Christ getting ready for the coming of the groom mm -hmm. at the last day. Yeah. And I think what, what you see in there... So we see a sanctification yeah. right. process taking place. And, and I can give you my understanding of this, which I know differs a little bit from yours, Gary. Um, but I think what Christ is saying there... First of all, he never did deny the reality of a literal kingdom. He never denied that. But 
Christ emphasized the fact that what had Israel denied? Well, I, I wouldn't question that because when the when the Jew, when the Pharisees came and demanded of him the kingdom, he says it doesn't come with observation. Yeah, but on other occasions he certainly intimated that yes, indeed, there is a coming kingdom. All right. So I, I think what happened. This is my understanding. Christ never said to the Jews, your idea of a literal kingdom is wrong. But he did, I think, say to the Jews, your concept of it only being a literal kingdom is wrong. Because what did the Jews reduce the kingdom of God to? Just to themselves. Just to themselves, just to the king, just to the king they wanted, we don't want the forgiveness. We don't want repentance. We don't want the heart. At, we don't want any of that. We just want the literal kingdom. And Christ saying, look, you've got it all wrong. There is a literal kingdom, but you don't get the literal kingdom without the spiritual kingdom. And with the Jews, they split those two apart. And Christ saying, no, you got to bring them back together. It says, you know, what we lost in the first Adam, we gained in the second. Mm -hmm. so everything we lost in the first Adam, we gained in the second, which is Christ. Mm -hmm. So, in essence, Christ, I'm trying to put it, put it in a clear, precise way. What the fall took place and brought us to the sacrifice of Christ made possible to reverse. Yeah. So everything and go beyond the reversal to something even better. To something even better, because now we have God in us again. Right. Before we didn't. Before the fall, God was in Adam. Right. Adam heard God inside him in, in the garden, and when there was a separation, that part of God left Adam. Yeah. And he was then alienated from God. Well, the, the, the relationship was shattered. What God. Salvation, we think salvation is the restoration or, or of us getting to heaven. That's what we think of. Be saved, you go to heaven. Right? Salvation, God's salvation is far beyond that. If you look at Romans 8, God's salvation, the redemption that Christ did on the cross, includes not only us, but all of creation, the universe. He's going to reconcile the entire universe in the sense of creation. The creation groans and travails in pain. And part of redemption is to provide for the restoration of the earth. And in fact, someday there's going to be a new heaven and earth. A new one. But what Christ did, and, and again, this, this, is, this is how we approach it here in, in the class. I think the, it answers most all of the questions. The spiritual, the, the kingdom that Christ offered is both. It's a both and, not an either or. The problem that the Jews did is they created only an earthly kingdom. That's all they saw. They did not see the spiritual reality behind that. In fact, they didn't even want the spiritual reality behind that. They wanted Christ to come in and be the king that they wanted him to be. In fact, the people tried to take him and by force make him king. Why? Because he fed them. I mean, good night. He was the king that they wanted. And Christ resisted that. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't give them the kingdom on their terms. Because what is the requirement to be a true kingdom citizen? 
If you want to be a true kingdom citizen, what's the requirement? Born in the kingdom. And where is that most, most clearly laid out as to what is the character of a kingdom citizen? Matthew 5 through 7, which is what? Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They shall see God. Blessed are those that mourn over sin. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Blessed are you when men revile you and say all things evil against you. Christ is laying out, if you want to know what the character of a kingdom citizen, and that's how we're going to right. approach the, gospel, the, the Sermon on the Mount, you want to know what a citizen of the kingdom is like, this is what he is like. He is broken over his sin. He mourns over his unrighteousness. He desires with his whole heart to be pure before God. So that's the citizen. The citizen of the kingdom. Just read the Sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount. What's the kingdom sins like? He, he keeps his word. His yea is yea, his no is no. A uh, kingdom citizen is not one who not only merely sticks a knife in somebody's back, he doesn't even slander his yeah. fellow man. He's not the one who commits adultery only. He's the one who doesn't even think it in his heart. He's not one that goes around trumpeting his alms before men, but his left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. He's not one who goes around and makes long prayers and public praises so people think he's so godly. Rather, he does it in secret. We're instructed to live like that today. Yeah. That's yeah. what separates the true believer from the uh, tares. Right. And so what you see, and we're going to see this in Matthew 8, 13, when we talk about the parables of the kingdom, Christ offered the literal kingdom to Israel. He offered them that. But what did they want? Did they want the literal kingdom? What do you think Jesus meant when he says, I'll, he says, I'll take the kingdom from you and give it to another nation that will bear the fruit thereof? I'm going to get to that. I'll get to that. I'll answer that. Christ offered the kingdom to Israel. The kingdom, when Christ said, began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was offering the bona fide, literal, physical kingdom to Israel, but what were the terms? They had to repent. What did they not want to do? They didn't want, they didn't want they the repentance. They had to turn and go the complete opposite direction. Right. And it they weren't just a, okay, I'll, I, I feel bad for what I did. It is a complete change of faith and of value system. Mm -hmm. And Christ offered that to them. It was a bona fide offer. It was a genuine offer, but they did not want the terms. They wanted the kingdom, but they didn't want the terms of the kingdom. And what did they finally what did they do? They rejected Christ. And finally in Matthew 12, what do they do? What did the Pharisees accuse Christ of doing? You're doing the miracles by Belzebub, the prince of demons. And what you see is a, is a, a mounting resistance to Christ as the king because he wasn't the king they wanted. And he wasn't offering the kind of kingdom that they wanted right then. They didn't understand that. So what happened in Matthew 13, the kingdom offer of the literal physical promise of fulfilling, fulfilling right now was withdrawn. 
And now what do you see? You see a mystery form of the kingdom. You still have the kingdom of God, but it's not the literal kingdom. What's it like? Um, well, it's like a man sowing in the field. It's like uh, a dragnet in the ocean. It's like a man who is seeking a pearl of great price. When he finds it, he'll sell everything and get it. It's like a guy who finds a treasure in the field. When he finds a treasure, he sells everything to buy the field to get the treasure. It's like a woman who takes leaven and hides it in three measures of meal till the whole is leaven. These are pictures of what the kingdom is going to be like in the meantime when it's taken away from Israel. And that's what Christ said. I'm going to withdraw the kingdom offer to you. I'm going to offer it to a people that's going to bring forth the fruits of repentance. But it was not a permanent withdrawal. It was a temporary one. All right. Maybe a bad illustration is this. Suppose, suppose you have a son and you tell that, tell that son or daughter, I will pay for your college education. Is that a bona fide offer? Yeah. Pretend you have the money. I will pay for your college education. All right, I will do that. Now, what if that son or daughter screws around in high school, doesn't get good grades, messes around, gets into trouble? What happens? Okay, you may. Now, was it a bona fide offer that you gave them? Right. Yeah. But because they did not get the grades and they did not apply to the college and did not want to go to the college, you withdraw that offer. But what happens if 10 years from now they get their act together, they do become responsible, what might you do? Give it back. Sell your boat. Give it back. Give it back. Give it back to help them. That, that's, and that, that's probably a, 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 a somewhat of a picture of what God did to Israel. God gave them the bona fide offer of the kingdom, but they didn't want the kingdom on his terms. They wanted it on their terms. So God said, okay, I'm going to withdraw it until you come to your senses, basically. And there's coming a day when it will be offered again. And when it's offered again, they're going to see it and take it. But right now, it is a spiritual kingdom. The form of it is seen in our spiritual kingdom. We are part of the kingdom of God right now. I'm a kingdom citizen. I'm part of the invisible kingdom of God right now. I'm one that is going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. There are others going to be baptized with fire, right? Who gets baptized with fire? Non-believers. But there is coming a day when God will fulfill His promises. But right now... It is the invisible kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom of God even as we speak. And it's a spiritual kingdom. But see, and, and I think that's where the confusion comes because people want to make it an either or. It's a both and. And the problem in Christ's day is the, is the religious leaders of Israel had only reduced it down to merely a physical kingdom. That's all they could understand. They did not understand you know, the, the necessity of repentance or contrition or humility. And Christ wasn't what they wanted him to be. So they said, he can't be the king because he's not, you know, the king would be running Rome out of here right now. He wouldn't be preaching repentance. 
He wouldn't not be saying, blessed are the meek, good night, the meek don't get anything. They're the ones that get trampled on. What do you mean, the blessed are the meek? And isn't that the way of the world? How do you get ahead in the world? Be evil and crooked. Yeah. Step on people. Step on people. And Christ is saying, you want to get ahead in my kingdom, what do you do? You've got to be the least. You've got to be the least. It's all opposite. You want to be greatest? You're going to have to be least. But the baptism here, I think, going back, was to identify Christ's ministry with that of John. It's the same ministry. He is the king. There's no confusion in people's minds as to what's going on here. Now, some say, um, here's some reasons why Christ was not baptized. He was not baptized because his family asked him to be baptized. There's no evidence for that anywhere. Um, he was not baptized as the Gnostics taught that uh, he was just a man walking around Jerusalem, around Judea, and then when he was baptized, the Christ Spirit came upon him and empowered him for ministry. That's the Gnostic view. That's the New Age view. The Spirit of Messiah. Where Christ was just a man until the Christ Spirit came upon him and empowered him for service. And the Christ Spirit happened to leave him just before he died on the cross. So who died on the cross? Just a man. He wasn't the Son of God. He just had the Spirit of Christ known on him, or Christ's Spirit on him. So if they're saying that, then they're denouncing the deity. Yeah, they deny the deity of Christ. Christ was baptized as an initiation into his high priestly role. That doesn't make any sense. There's no evidence for that. And he was baptized to identify with the Gentiles. Who was being baptized, Jews or Gentiles? Jews. Jews. It wasn't Gentiles. That didn't make any sense. So why was Christ baptized? Uh, he was baptized as an example of obedience. Gary said that's, that's right. He was baptized in order to identify his ministry as a continuation of John the Baptist. And he was baptized so those who observed his baptism would also see his ministry confirmed by God the Father. He confirmed the ministry of John the Baptist he and his ministry was confirmed by the Father. And by extension, what was the Father also affirming? John's ministry. He affirmed all of it. Now, John and Christ were cousins. Yes. And they probably knew each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any chance uh, John's mom knew who his cousin Christ was? Yeah. Well, John and Mary and Elizabeth met, remember? Yeah, but what I'm asking is, uh, would Mary ever have revealed the things that uh, she kept in her heart about... Uh, We're not told. Yeah. I can't help but imagine that some of it was. I don't think she said everything, but I can't believe... You know, it had been very... should be evident very early on that there was something different about Christ. Mm -hmm. If he never sinned, that would be one thing. It had to show... Which means he probably never had the effects of sin and the fall on nature. So he probably never was sick. No. He was in perfect health the whole time he walked the earth. Yeah. Because he had to be in perfect health to be the perfect sacrifice. Yeah. 
He didn't have any of the effects of fallen, fallenness. Let's talk about the temptation for a little bit. Immediately after Christ is baptized, what happens? Went out, driven out into the, by the Holy Spirit in the Judean wilderness to be tempted. What's tempted here? The idea of tempting, what is that? When we think of temptation, what do we think of? How do we understand that word? The opportunity to stand. Right. The actual Greek word parasmos means to test. Okay, it, it's really an amoral kind of word. It's not to try and get somebody to sin, but it's a testing. He was sent out of the wilderness to be tested. All right? It's a test. Well, remember the messages by Pastor Jim on learning the misconceptions of temptation. Temptation is an invitation to sin. It's, it's a test. That's what it is. It's a test. It could be positive. It could be negative, depending on how you respond to it. Right? If you flunk the test, it's a sin. If you pass the test, it's a test. It's a character Yeah. Christ went out in the wilderness to be tested. Now, why is that? Why is it necessary that Christ be tested? What is God trying to reveal at this point? Well, we know that he's, he was tempted in all things, but without sin. Right. So he was experiencing all that life can throw at a person that is born of Man. Right. And so what was God proving in Christ's temptation? That he was sinless. That he was sinless. And he was setting Christ up to make him, from the physical human standpoint, what? The perfect sacrifice. Well, see, where did Christ go to get tempted? Did he go to the Riviera? He went to the wilderness, didn't he? The desert, the harshest conditions, the heat, the heat of the desert. And he was fasting for 40 days. What does that mean? No food. Well, he's drinking. You have to drink. But you don't drink anything other than just the bare necessity water. All right. So he's in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And again, this brings up a great theological debate on the, on the temptation of Christ. One, temptability. Was Christ temptable? Was it possible to be tested? Yeah. yeah. The possibility of being tempted. So the possibility of sinning. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that because that's yeah. the next big question. Impeccability, impeccability. Impeccability is the quality of character that cannot yield to temptation. Peccability says you can yield. So the big theological debate is, is Christ impeccable or peccable? The temptation's not valid if he's not capable of peccable. Is it? <laughs> We've discussed this before. I think it's is it? I think he was impeccable. Because he is God, and therefore he cannot sin. But he, but he, but he, he can, can build the full temptation of sin. Yeah, he can, right. He can 
and feel the temptation. I think that's the best, in my studies of Scripture, that's the best way I've come to understand it. Because I think there's a couple of misconceptions about temptation. We have the concept that temptation is an infinite force. Right? And that we have to sin. Remember what Jim was talking about in his sermons. Temptation is not an infinite force. It, it's an invitation, but it's not inevitable. It's an invitation. You don't have to sin. Our problem is, because of our fallenness, we yield to the temptation long before. Well, that's you know. partly because we're not preaching the truth like mm -hmm. we used to. Mm -hmm. And because we live, I think part of it here is we have this concept, well, if I sin, God will forgive me anyways. Right. Well, you, plus they say you're forgiven for past, present, and future sin. Yeah, so we minimize it. We minimize the concept here. And I think we do ourselves, and I think Gary is right, we need to preach this differently. That's right. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill Fill the lust of the flesh. flesh. I can do all things through Christ right. that strengthens me. Right. With every temptation, he's made a way of escape. Right. So really, when you think of the temptation, you have to stop looking at it from an earthly perspective. Yes, you're tempted, but maybe it's time to start looking at it and say, there's a way of escape here, God. Show it to me and let me walk through that door. Yeah. And then you walk through the, the temptation and you come out on the other side, a better person, a better person of character, right. and you understand the provision of God that God has made for you. I think, I think Christians today are woefully deficient in their understanding of temptation and understanding of, of this. They have the idea, I have to sin. I can't help myself. Yeah, you can. And I think it's also um, exacerbated by what I would call our therapeutic model of sin. It's not fornication, lasciviousness, it's a pornographic addiction. It's not drunkenness, it's a disease. That's right. Okay. We've, we've, you know, put... Progression from sin, disease, way I was born. Yeah. 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 So, what we've done is, is we've really... I think done a great disservice. Yeah. When we look at the positions, it goes back to these two Latin phrases, posse non peccari. What's that mean? Able not to sin. And theologians have argued this for centuries. And those who fall in and say, well, Jesus was just able not to sin. He could have sinned. But he was able not to. Now, the, 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 where they get this is they say, well, how, why do I believe this? Well, I believe this because, A, for it to be a valid temptation, there has to be the possibility of failure. Is that necessarily true? No. No, it is not. Not only that, but the temptation. The testing is not for God. 
the testing's for you. Mm -hmm. Because God already knows the end. He already knows the outcome of the right. But the point here is that those who, who, who argue for this position argue that unless it was possible for Christ to, be to sin, then he was not in reality tempted. And the answer is, no, that's not true at all. Because what are you saying about temptation in that case? You're saying it's an infinite force. And the Bible says if you sin, then you're a servant of sin. Right. So now here's a question. Now, here, now let's 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 look at this another way. A thousand years from now, when we're all in heaven, are we going to be fully human? No, but we're getting a glorified body. Yeah, but it's not. So I mean, it's not going to be like her. Are we going to be fully human? I say no. I say yo. <laughs> yes. Do we have any yeses in the crowd? Yes. yes we're going to be fully human. Yes. <coughs> when I'm in heaven, because that's what I am. I'm my nature human. I'm, my nature is human. I'm going to be fully human. All right. I'm going to be fully 100% human. I'm not going to be something other than human because that's my nature. That's that's what I am. That's my my essence, my being, is that of humanity. Huh? I thought we were going to be different. I have a different body. The Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. All right. So figure that one out. Now, here's, here's the thing. In the eternal state, am I going to be able to sin? No. Why? Because you're different. Because there's nothing within me that would draw me to sin. All right? So I will not be able to sin. There will be no sin there anyhow. Yeah, I won't be able to follow it up. But I'll be fully human. But that will all be in the lake of fire. Okay. Those who are sinful are in the lake of fire. All right? But the point is heaven's not going to clear itself out over a few millennia as people sin. There won't be the possibility of sinning. Will we not even be tempted to sin? No. Be because and even if we were, we'd say, "You got to be kidding." The temptation would be like, "Yeah, got to be kidding. Why would I do that?" Why do I want to go to the lake of fire? Yeah, <laughs> or no, it's it's because we're going to be so in love with God that the that the mere thought of doing anything to displease Him would not even cross our mind. We won't be able to follow it up. And so what they want to say, say, well, in order for Christ to have been human, he had to sin. The problem with that statement is that sin is not an essential component of what it means to be human. Remember, we talked about this. Plus, we can look back at the garden and say, Adam lived a sinless life until the day he did sin. Right. But the point is this. I can be 100% human and not sinful and not be tempted to sin. I can do that and still be 100% human. What they want to do is they want to create the, a couple of straw men. They want to say, one, in order for Christ to be fully human, he had to be able to sin. That's not a necessary conclusion. That's a disconnected conclusion. 
You can be fully human and yet not sin and not be able to sin. The other statement they say is that in order for the temptation to be real, he had to be able to sin. Well, again, that's not a valid statement. It just means that he was tempted, but he was not able to cave into that temptation, although he felt the full force of the temptation. Which for him was probably not a very strong it was, it was the, it was the, you got to understand. You would never disappoint God. So. When, when you sin, when you sin, you do very well all by yourself. There's not a demon around you. Okay, you look around and you see something and you'll be drawn into sin. Okay? Now, if you have a demon show up, and you try to handle that in your own power, you're dead meat. If you have Satan show up, you're smashed like a bug. Who showed up to Christ? Satan. Christ's level of temptation was far beyond anything we in here can even imagine. We've never had Satan personally tempt us. I don't want Satan to personally tempt me because I can't handle it. I will fall. And that's why God, God you know, 1 Corinthians 13, He will not allow you to be tested above what you're able. God knows your temptation limit and He will not allow you to go, allow Satan over that. So why are the temptations in place? You stop and think about it. You know, you back off 20,000 feet. Because we live in a fallen world and we're stuck with a fallen flesh. We are instructed to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Yep. But I think the temptations are markers, sort of like, you ever hear the, the doctors, when they talk about cancer, they say you got three or four markers. Mm -hmm. And that, those markers are indications that you might have cancer. Mm -hmm. The more markers you have, the more chances are you have cancer. You know, you talk about living a Christian life so that you know you're a Christian and you can get to that place where you can know when you start overcoming the temptations and when the when when that moment hits and, and you you know you get in the flesh as, as they say and you're able to catch yourself and then make the make the decision no I'm not doing it that way anymore. That gives you the realization that the power that you once didn't have, you now have because of the Holy Spirit's in you. Yep. And that's, that's what Paul was talking about in Romans when he, when he began to say it. He started off and said, I used to do the things that I didn't want to do, and I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then he, got, he, then he went over there and he says, but now we're more than conquerors. What makes us more than conquerors? The ability of the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. Yeah. And those temptations are just obstacles that God allows in our path to identify our weaknesses and help us. And yes, do we stumble and fall on some of them? Yeah. Yes. But you know what? As a Christian, you crawl back to God and you ask forgiveness. And you say, God, I don't want to do that. I know I'm doing it, but I don't want to. And then all of a sudden you pray and you ask God, and God gives you the victory. And God wants you to depend on Him 
and not on yourself. When exactly. Peter said, everybody will leave, I won't. Shall inherit yeah. Those changes that take place in our life are marked in the, in the, in the kingdom yeah. life. Yeah. And then it's clear who you belong to. Peter said, I'm not going to deny you. And Christ said, yeah, right. Within three hours, you know, by cocktails three times, you're going to deny me three times. You know. The difference later was the fact they had the Holy Spirit. Right. The, the point here is this. I don't believe this is a tenable position on Christ because it implies that God could have sinned. It implies that, that sin is a necessary component of humanity or at least the ability to sin is a necessary component of humanity, which I don't think is true. All right. And it implies that temptation is an infinite force, which I don't think it is. We cave long before it's ever reached. So, what's the other position? Well, non posse picari, not able to sin. Christ was not able to sin. He could not sin. Why? Because he's God. Can God sin? No. Christ could not sin. Yet, in his humanity, he felt the full force of the temptation, but he did not submit to it because he could not submit to it. He took the full, undiluted force of Satan's temptation and was not able to fold and defeated Satan. Temptation is not an infinite force. So what was the temptation? Well, we know these make the stones bread. What's, what's the temptation here? Well, you've been in the desert for 40 days. You're hungry. Good night, Jesus. You're the Son of God. You created the world. I mean, make yourself some bread. Personal gain. But what is, what is the what is Satan, Satan hinting at here? God won't provide. God won't take care of you. You need to take care. You need to look out for number one because God obviously has forgotten about you. I heard something very interesting the other day. Somebody said this. They said Satan has. We only have three recorded instances in Scripture where Satan, where we have the recorded voice of Satan. Only three times in Scripture we hear Satan speaking. What's the first one of those? In the garden. In the garden. And what is he saying about God? Well, he really didn't do it that way. Yeah. He is imputing, impugning the nature and character of God in the garden. And then where's the next time Satan talks? Job. And what is he doing in Job? He's saying the reason Job's living for you is because you've got a head to So he's impugning again. He's slandering, isn't he? He slanders God. Now he's slandering Job. And the next time we hear him speaking is in the temptation. And what's he even doing here? In his temptations? Slandering God. You know, Jesus, your father must not like you very much because, now look, did say, is, that, is, is this the only thing Satan told, told Christ, do you think? No. No, probably, he, he probably worked on Christ a little bit. Yeah. It was probably not just this one phrase. But the intimation is here. Your father's not taking care of you. Make stones in a bread. You're the son of God. You have the power to do that. Do it. And what's 
What's he trying to get Christ to do? To depend on his own strength and not God's. Do it your way. And you know what? That happened to Abraham, and what happened? The Arabs. Whenever we try to give God a hand, we follow it up. What's the second temptation? Well, throw yourself down off the temple. I mean, you're going to start your ministry here. I mean, what better way to do it than a miracle? Float down to the ground. The pinnacle of the temple was 400 feet over the valley floor. Float down to the ground. Just float. Fly. Buzz the Pharisees. I mean, that'll really get your ministry started. After all, God's going to protect you, right? So you can't do anything to kill yourself because God's not going to allow you to be killed. Jump. The angels are going to have to bear you up because you can't fall because... Think about what kind of ministry Christ would have had if he had just been flying from one spot to the next like Superman. That wasn't... What's, he, what's, what's this? Uh, pride. We have the lust of the flesh. We have the pride of life. And Satan says, uh, worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Did Satan have the power to do that? No. Sure he did. Or he wouldn't have made the offer, right? Who's the God of this world? He makes offers all the time to us. Yeah, who's the God of this world? Yeah. What's he doing? He's saying, you can have the kingdom and bypass the cross. Do it the easy way. Don't do it God's way. God, I know God, your father, wants you to go get nailed on a cross. But I'll tell you what, we can avoid the whole cross business and still get the end result. Do it my way. Lust of the eyes. Um, in fact, what does it say? Satan showed him all the glories of the kingdoms of the world. Sort of a panoramic view. How did Christ respond to Satan's temptation? He quoted Scripture. How, how, how best can we Deal with the temptation of Satan. The word of God. Quote scripture. Um, he did it with a direct quote. Make these stone breads. Deuteronomy 8.13. Or 8.3. Quoted 8.3. Throw thyself down. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Worship me. Thou shalt worship the Lord God, thy God only. And him only shall thou serve. And I, I like this. Here's listen. Our victory over temptation is a knowledge of this book. That's where the victory lies. I find as I get older in my Christian life, my victory is directly proportional to how well I know this and use it. The answers are here. The Bible says the word sanctified. Yeah. It makes a prayer. Yeah. And in fact, the Bible says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, the Machairi, the, the small, short dagger. That's useful only in close combat where you get it up under a chink of the armor and, and drive it home. It, it was a precision weapon. 
The Word of God is precision weapon. So if you have trouble with gossip, what do you need to do? And I'll tell you what, memorize what the Bible says about gossip. And it's not fun anymore. It won't be fun. If you have a problem with lust, what do you do? Memorize what the Bible says about lust. If you have a problem with covetousness, what do you do? Memorize verses on covetousness. Bring the word into your heart. And God will, God will activate that. When you're in the temptation, these verses will flood to your mind and there'll be a way out. And I like what Vance Havner says. If the Lord could defeat Satan with three verses out of the Deuteronomy, what should we do with the whole Bible? By the way, this is interesting. What could Christ have told Satan? Buzz off. Go away, you bother me. All right. Why didn't he do that? Set an example for us. Christ could have told Satan to leave me. And Satan would have had to leave him. But what would we have not known about Christ if it had happened? We would have said, well, that's not really fair. It wasn't a real temptation because Christ played his trump card. He's God. But by allowing himself to be tempted, by allowing Satan to throw it all at him, what is Christ showing us? You don't have to sin. You really don't. You know, when Jesus was getting his disciples ready, you know, for his departure, and then he told them, he says, take heart, he says, I've overcome the world. You know, he's getting ready to send them all out, and they were all going to die martyr's death. They were all going to be thrown in prison, beaten, stoned, crucified, sawn asunder, you know. But he told me, he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. Whatever I've called you to do, the direction I'm sending you out, he says, I've already won. I've yeah. already won. Mm -hmm. And you can count on me to provide. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, he was an all-poised tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And what does that make? It makes him a sympathetic high priest. That's right. He's at the right hand now. So when you go to Christ and you say, you don't understand what I'm going through, he says, oh, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you the day. I've been down that path. I know exactly what you're going through. And I can sympathize with you. Now, he's not excusing our sin, is he? No. No. But he's certainly sympathetic to it. Because he knows that we are but dust. We have everything we need in the Holy Spirit. Yep. And the Word of God. We don't have to sin. What was the aftermath of temptation? Satan left Christ for a season. And what did the Father do? To minister to Christ. Now, could Christ have called the angels down? Yep. Sure he could. But in his incarnation, what did he do? He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And what did he prove? He proved that he was the sinless and impeccable Son of God. Someone said Abraham, or Adam lost to temptation in the perfect place. Christ defeated temptation in the most inhospitable place. Adam was in the garden, perfection. Christ was in the desert, thirsty, tired, 40 days without food.
and he won. He sold something priceless for a piece of food. And God gave his only begotten son to buy it back. Yep. Okay. Bart, where we were gone, we decided that we're going to meet yeah. on 1st and 8th, and we're going to miss the 15th, because I'm going to be gone on the 15th. That's probably good. So we're going to swap. Probably be a... <laughs> well, 15th is like your, your day of hell on yeah, the... <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're, we're going to skip the 15th and meet on the 8th. And I'll, I'll have CDs yeah, for you, Brenda. Last, uh, yeah. May. Yeah, it goes into May. Yeah, we have pizza next week. Yeah, I'll get the stuff here for you when I close prayer. Father, thanks for this time you've granted to us and help us to ponder what we studied. Grant us insight and help us to gain understanding from it, especially here in the area of temptation. Father, we don't have to sin. And sometimes we think we can't help it, but we can. I pray that you would gain, grant us victory in our lives. We depend on your Holy Spirit to give us that victory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.